Welcome to Positivity Strategist, a podcast to help you be the best you can be to grow your business, your relationships and personal life. Our conversations with thought leaders and everyday people will inspire you. My mission is to show how positivity helps us all live a more rewarding and meaningful life. Hello, welcome to Positivity Strategist, Episode 15. I'm your host, Robin Stratton-Burkessel. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Jean-Louis Lombore as my guest. Jean-Louis is co-founder of Constellation, a global organization whose strength is community development. He's speaking with me from Belgium today. Just before I introduce Jean-Louis, we have our weekly Positivity Lens reframe segment, You know, I do this each week as a way to strengthen our positivity muscle and to hone our ability to view people and situations through multiple lenses, particularly the positive lens. Remember, what you focus on grows. Last week's episode with Sue Elliott, entitled How Love, Passion and Joy Inspire Profits, positivitystrategist.com slash PS14, The weekly activity was focused on paying attention to your body cues to help you become more conscious of how you respond in the moment. I suggested you pay attention to when, how, and where tension or heat or change of your breathing shows up for you. I invited you to notice if you could appreciate those sensations for what they were and how you might choose to respond in better service of yourself and others. Did you need to slow down or count to three before reacting to something unpleasant or difficult? Or did you ask yourself, what's the most loving thing I can do right now? Did you have to tell your younger self kindly, you don't need her anymore, as your adult self was fully capable? Did you do any centering exercises? For me, I just know that when I start my day, With my loving-kindness meditation, it's a great start to the day, and it has a much higher probability of staying great. So it's all about continued practice. I keep at it, as I hope you do too. Today, I'm deeply honored to have Jean-Louis Lombore as my guest. He's speaking to us from just outside Brussels in Belgium. Welcome, Jean-Louis. Hi, Robin. <laughs> it's so lovely to have you here. Yeah, a pleasure <laughs> to talk to you all across the Atlantic. Exactly, that's right. I'm um, in New Jersey, as you probably know. So let me just introduce Jean-Louis. Um, Jean-Louis Lombre co-founded a global organization called Constellation 10 years ago. It's a Belgian NGO working across the world to stimulate, empower and connect communities. In this organization, Jean-Louis has co-created a strength-based approach to community development called Community Life Competence. And the organization's structure is modeled on the Starfish design. It's non-hierarchical network of people and organizations delivering strength-based approaches to communities. And in my travels and work, I've met a number of people who work for Constellation and we keep in touch on social networks. What lifts me up about this organization, Constellation, is the philosophy and mission 
but more it's the practice, the actions and the experiences it provides everyone who's involved and that it actively connects to other communities. And what seems to me Constellation does best is to show that when a community discovers its strengths, it takes ownership and it starts to act even more strongly. So Jean-Louis, I'd like to read something from your LinkedIn profile that I loved. So let me just do that and then I would love you to take it from there. So here's what I want to read, which really touched me. You say, for some mysterious reason, I have always felt that at their core, people were good and that they could achieve a lot if they were engulfed with trust. I keep being amazed by the power of a positive outlook on people and situations. That power not only transforms the situation, it has transformed me. Please say more about that, Jean-Louis. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Did I say that? It's not bad, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Yeah, it does. Uh, I think, it, it, yes, it does for some mysterious reasons, I have to say that. Even in the 70s when I was a, a, a medical doctor uh, working in health districts in Congo, I was doing that. My A priori, my stance was that I would basically uh, communicate to people, not necessarily in words, that they could do more, that they were able to do more. And yes, uh, it was doing wonders. Nurses in Lower Congo were enabled to detect and treat tuberculosis the same day. And they had not even electricity. They would do that with uh, solar microscopes. Uh, solar, not as in solar, you know, energy, electricity, but just a mirror, the sun, and then straight to the microscope. And mm -hmm. they would do that. And because they felt the trust, they never embezzled one gram of streptomycin that could be used for something else. So yes, uh, from the beginning, I, I have found that trust works, yes. And that, yes, that people are good, that in essence, people are good. And the question is to touch that goodness in human beings, yes. Mm. Yeah, it would be fabulous with all the experience that you've had. And I want to get to Constellation specifically, but I'm interested if you could share a specific story that illustrates this. <laughs> well, it's, it's being lived out what uh, through what we call SALT. SALT stands for stimulate, appreciate, learn, and transfer. That seems a bit strange. But our outlook uh, on people and on situations is that we are there, if you want, in between brackets, in a selfish way. We are there to learn from them. Mm -hmm. Because we want to learn from people, clearly our questions stimulating in a, of kind and the, the nature of our question is stimulating and we seek to appreciate what is. We are not coming into situations with a mental frame in mind. We are just there appreciating what's there. And because fundamentally people are good, it's the goodness of people that is emerging. Now that leads to several consequences. One of them is in our way of seeing the world, we don't see no sinners, no saints. 
We see the goodness in everyone. Yeah. And so here's an example, if you want. Uh, here is this uh, Greek Catholic priest, pastor, who comes from southern India. Uh, he must be 47 or something, so that age. And we are organizing appreciative visits, which we call salt visits, to various communities in Chiang Mai, northern Thailand. Can I just interrupt for a second? So what would take you into the community to start? Why are you going into these communities? We know them, that's all. We, or we are invited. We happen to know those people and just we ask if we could go come to learn from them. That's different from the full engagement with communities. It was just a first visit to a community. And so the, the pastor goes and that particular community is called the Pink House, if I remember well. And this is a house where people from all gender uh, can come and feel relaxed. And so feel at home. And the person who talks is himself a gay man. And he, he explains his life. After the visit, this pastor, 47 years, reflects as we always do, after such visits, we reflect together. What strengths do we see? What can we take home? And he says, look, for 47 years, I've been taught to hate people, gay people. And while I was there, appreciating the strengths of this man and seeing what a wonderful life he was carrying, I thought, God cannot hate this person. Mm. I will change my teaching when mm. I'm going back to southern India. He tells that in English, but he has a Tamil friend next to him who has worked with him on AIDS for years. And while this is being translated in Thai, what he just said, he translates in Tamil because his English is not so good. And so the friend at the end says, is that serious what you told me? You really said that? I said, of course, I can't make this up. Yes, this is what I, what I think of the visit. This is what I said. Oh, then today I can tell you something. I am one of them. Mm. And when, when this gentleman told this to the 90 people or 70 people who had come for this event we had organized to learn and share from our experiences, he had tears in his eyes. He said, when I go back to India, I will change my teaching. The context was a learning, uh, a learning event about this, that is correct. But when we engage in those communities, uh, it's not about it, it's about life. Yes, and I think what I was hearing from that story, thank you, Jean-Louis, is really appreciating the diversity of all the different perspectives and the validity of those and the, how that speaks to that piece about it not only transforms the situation but it transforms the individuals. It's that kind of co-construction of learning through and with others. And then the piece that you were saying it was translated goes back to outside communities and that's kind of the expansion of it. It it's changing one community to another through the conversations and the learnings and the experiences. So that made it very clear to me. Thank you so much. When we appreciate strength in a community, 
two things happen simultaneously. One is because of the way we ask questions, the way we reflect together, people realize their own strengths and that enables them to carry on with their work or even uh, carry on differently with their work, depending on situation. But we are transformed to that. Mm -hmm. And we transform our own context. In this case, this parish or this pastor. Mm -hmm. But that example uh, multiplies, I don't know, millions of times. We, we see that over and over again. So that basically we can say that an excellent indicator of success is actually the transfer. That is, when when people realize their strengths, they share spontaneously with other communities what they have learned. Mm -hmm. And we can we have what we call transfer maps, which we can see that positive thinking goes viral. When we appreciate strengths in people, they act and they start realizing their own strengths. But it doesn't stop there. When they realize their own strengths, they then share what they have learned with other communities. In turn, those other communities may share to a third and, and fourth set of communities that learning, oh, we can do this by ourselves, and here's how. So what we observe is a positive epidemic. Mm, beautiful, a positive epidemic. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. So why don't we backtrack and tell me a little about Constellation, the organization, how it was founded, and, and anything else you'd like to share. So Constellation was basically founded uh, 10 years ago. The reason for it was basically the failure. And the failure was my own within UNAIDS, a program of the UN which I had helped to found uh, while I was at the World Bank. And I wanted to contribute to, to the functioning and to the mission of UNAIDS, which was to basically mobilize a joint response by UN organizations. And when was this? This was 95. UNAIDS started 95. I started to launch what became the regional office of UNAIDS in, in Bangkok. After one year, that is then, yeah, 96, something like that, I, I thought, no, this, this is a job for a person from Asia. I'm replaced and I'm free for other jobs. And what I have the opportunity to do is to live in Payao, northern Thailand. This is a province of half a million people. But what I'm going to explain is true for 10 million people that is Northern Thailand, the region between Chiang Mai, Chiang Rai, Payao, that place of the world. Well, in Payao, in 1992, June 1992, the proportion of military conscripts living with HIV was 20%. When I was in 96, 97, it was around 6 to 7%. In 2000, it was 0%, 0 point something. Military conscripts, by definition, is 100% of the population of 21-year-old men, because they are all conscripted. 
So this is very serious data about the evolution of HIV infection in, in Payao. And as I said, the trend was the same in other, in other provinces. And because I had worked a lot in Africa and I had many friends in Africa, I knew how people in Africa and elsewhere, of course, would like to know what was going on, what was the secret of people of Northern Thailand, why, in contrast with the rest of the world, the epidemic was receding in, in Northern Thailand. And so I went there, not to study the Thais, but rather to play the role of a midwife, if you want, and to try to help them reflect on more or less 10 years of epidemic and what what had gone, what is, was their secrets? Mm -hmm. What were they doing differently that others were not doing? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so after reviewing uh, all the data, reviewing uh, the economics of the situation, reviewing the point of view from the point of view of people through anthropological focus groups, etc., the conclusion by the Thais in that, in that province was, you know, when we started dealing with it, we dealt with it as if it were smallpox. So we provided, we took people as targets for our interventions. We would target them with information, target them with care for so much. Uh, there was something about they were able to treat uh, sexually transmitted infections. We would target the most vulnerable groups. But that is not what made the difference. What made the difference was that in this province, that is uh, Payao, people will discuss AIDS publicly, mm -hmm. saying, why are we in this situation? What can we change? And so they did change. So there was public discussion, public reflection, and then common action. Mm -hmm. To give an example, people realized that, in fact, there were parents entrusting their, their daughters to agents for some job that was well-paying. They did not ask too many questions about it, but they suspected it had to do with sex work. So they actually, some of them went on study tour and went to see what the, the job was that those girls were actually doing. When they come back, they said, no, uh, we cannot ask this from our daughters. And so the agents had less and less success in hiring girls to put them in brothels in Thailand and elsewhere. This is just one example. You see also then the, that girls going to schools is increasing very much. You see also that people who were using the services of women in brothels were less and less so that brothels closed from mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. than 70 to about seven when I was there. So you see the changes. Yeah. And so uh, in a nutshell, the conclusion was this. The battle against smallpox that was won in health centers and uh, outreach posts, that one, because there was a vaccine. You could target people. But AIDS is, more, is not smallpox. If the battle against smallpox was won in health centers and outreach posts, 
This battle is decided in bedrooms, and there health services are not there. Mm -hmm. And so the process of owning an issue collectively and then acting on it was something that was key to explain why, unlike the rest of the world at that time, those people, the people of Northern Thailand, were actually making HIV recede. And so a report was written, approved by Thai government. I went back to UNAIDS in 98, and then that report was basically published, but absolutely no support if you want to, to make it an event. And so basically, it dust came on that report. Mm-hmm. We were then a small group trying to influence global policy that was basically based on provision of care, provision of preventive services, provision of services to reduce impact. So it was all about providing, doing things for people, which is necessary, but not sufficient. Right. So that was needed. But another thing was essential. And that was a process of stimulating that conversation that was taking place in northern Thailand, but that we saw was not spontaneously taking place, for instance, in Africa. Mm-hmm. And so we said we need to facilitate what we call local responses, what people do by themselves to, using their own resources to act on a concern they have collectively yeah. and learn from it. So. Yeah. From 98 to 2004, we were trying really hard to influence global policies so that this other arm, if you want, of action would be put in place. And we failed. The current strategy is still about interventions carried out by services, services to prevent, services to care services to reduce impact. And there is nothing wrong with that as long as it is done with in mind the fact that people are at the center, people are the key actors. We can only help them, support them in their actions Mm -hmm. with technology, but technology cannot replace the decisions by people about their own lives. And on that, we were, we, we basically failed. And that's why we created Constellation in 2004. We said, okay, we can't do it from within. Then let's add this little contribution, mm-hmm. which is to stimulate and connect local responses. In other words, communities taking charge and sharing their experience between themselves. That's what we did decided to do from the outside in 2004. Wow, that's fantastic. When people do it for themselves, they feel that's what they commit to. So they want to create their own solutions and it comes from you go there to stimulate these conversations. That's the S of salt, yes? Yes. That's how it starts. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's great. So what you're saying there in terms of what was happening with AIDS, I guess what I'm hearing is that you had this AIDS competence. You were saying that because it's the community of competence, which is what what you're about. Yes. So. And so if you uh, were to use this for Ebola, for example, what might mm. be the Ebola competence. Yes. Yeah, I'll get to Ebola. Uh, And just uh, carry through, if you want, that is that in 2004, we we actually, uh, we started uh, 
proposing to work with communities on AIDS. And the first group that uh, said we are interested was actually the Aga Khan Development Networks. And this is a network of organizations, some for profit, others not for profit, from the Ismaili uh, group in Kenya. So you had hotels and hospitals and madrasas, mm. all of them looking at their own aid situation and acting on it. But very soon, we got invited to work on other concerns. First were health concerns, such as malaria. And so we facilitated the taking ownership of malaria by communities in Togo, in Guinea, and other places with results, with evaluated results by universities, etc. And then diabetes came, and then people said, well, but why not apply the same process to other challenges, mm -hmm. such as violence in households, mm -hmm. and then living peacefully together? Beautiful. And then we, we went also to one of our points was that there was no, we could not see what developed country was meaning. Uh, we knew of rich countries and poor countries, but we were hoping everyone was still developing. So mm -hmm. we applied the same process in our own country, in Belgium, and now it's expanding to other countries uh, of richer countries, such as the Netherlands and France. So uh, progressively, the process which we proposed has become uh, generic. Mm -hmm. We now realize that Every group has basically within the group the essential uh, resources to carry out actions towards a dream. Mm -hmm. every, every group has that. And so our mission is then to ensure that people realize that. Once they realize that, they formulate a dream, they say how they can act on that dream, they see where they are at in terms of realizing the dream and then take steps towards implementation. After some time, they take stock, crystallize what they have learned, that they can share with others, and move on to a next round of implementation. Mm -hmm. This is a very learning from action cycle, very well known in the industry, for instance. Now, Ebola. When we see people, uh, uh, when we saw Ebola, we say, well, let's learn right away. It was immediate. Let's learn from the Congolese. The Congolese have, over the years, since 1976, addressed effectively, responded effectively to seven epidemics. None of them has lasted more than 100 days. You would think that what Congolese pioneers, those who have been there on the forefront since then until now, would have a voice and would be listened to. Well, Dr. Miatudila Malonga, who I suspect is too modest to say it, but I guess he's even the guy who proposed to call that outbreak, the first one, and call the virus Ebola, mm. that is the river that was flowing through the first outbreak of, of the epidemic. And so 
Miatudila says two things. First, and trust the people with the facts. Give them the facts. Two, give them the facts. That is not give them injunctions, orders. Do this, don't do that. No, give them the facts. Okay, that's the difference. And two, make sure they realize they are in the driver's seat. Mm -hmm. Make sure that they make decisions on the basis of the facts of what they would do to prevent, to care, and unfortunately, to bury those who die from AIDS. Mm. Uh, sorry, from Ebola. Mm. That is what he says. He sounds like a broken record. He's in Washington and has, <laughs> you know, that's clearly the, the lesson. And so what our proposal would be is to say, look, let's apply that systematically. Let's interest the people with the information. Let's give them, of course, the essential means, which is called gloves, masks, some disinfectants, basic stuff that can really make a difference. And let people decide throughout a nation, not just in the places where there is Ebola, but throughout a nation, decide how they will handle it. Mm -hmm. Okay? Let's then accompany them so that people are treated on site. Instead, what is ha being happening now is injunctions, that is, orders. And if there is a body, there will be a fast burial team or something coming in. Wait a minute. Now I read they will need the helicopters to do that. Because, of course, there are places that are very hard to reach by cars. And, and certainly not in, in a matter of minutes. You, you, you need hours or maybe days to get at, at outbreak places. So what we, we recommend, what we say needs to take place, and that is the, on the basis of successful dealing with six or, sorry, seven epidemics is what I just said. And not have a systematic quasi-military uh, operation that forces people to hospitals that are too full if there is an epidemic or then become empty or even are built in places where there are no patients anymore because the, the, the epidemic has moved on. So that is one, and no, quarantines forced from the outside, uh, for so far I know something about Africa will never work because people will find ways around it. Of If they are too forceful, then people, are, uh, the, the economic life is stopped and they cannot mm. eat and there are riots. Well, mm. of course, that's totally understandable. Mm. So we, we, we say, please, please, heads of states, please, people, Trust your own people. Yeah. Okay, they can, of course we can help, but trust your own people. Your own people have gone through worse than this. They've gone through war. Well, they have dealt with it. They, it's, it's a bit unfortunate to talk about oh, decrepit or health systems that are broken down because, because of war. That is more or less 10 years later. Mm -hmm. The data show that life expectancy is expanding in those countries and that, for instance, immunization programs, while not famous, are, are making progress. So why not recognize the progress that people are making mm -hmm. and, and saying, we trust, we trust that you, your communities can deal with it with a proper attitude of those who are there to accompany. But if instead... You appear in a, in, a, in a village dressed like a cosmonaut 
Well, of course, I'll be fearful if I see a cosmonaut coming into my room or my home. I say, oh my God, what what my my neighbor, wife, or child has here must be extremely contagious. Otherwise, that person would not show up as a cosmonaut. <laughs> so, whatever message about this is transmitted through intimate contact must be untrue. Otherwise, why would this person come out of this car dressed as a cosmonaut? Yeah. So, you see what what the impact is. I'm afraid that the the fear fear has been used, as we did in the first uh, period of AIDS. There was also Fear, and what we learned is fear fuels discrimination, disempowers people, makes them act irrationally. And that's what we see throughout, throughout uh, the reactions we see in those affected countries. Yeah. Yeah. So what we're really creating, of course, you've mentioned fear, but it's this dependency. So you're taking away people's ability to make decisions and feel trusted and have that sense of autonomy when you're treated like children, you behave like children, right? So that is exactly right, and uh, that uh, that is something that uh, uh, in Congo, the leader of People with AIDS was once interviewed by a journalist who uh, was working with us. Jean Le Gastelois is his name. Says, "Well, this approach frees your speech." And the doctor, leader of People with AIDS, answered. No, it doesn't free speech. It gives our speech back. Mm-hmm. In other words, the space that is normally used and definitely used traditionally by African communities in ways that we in, let's say, in rich countries have forgotten to do. But communities in Africa have that capacity to sit and talk and reflect together and act together. They have that capacity. It's just that that capacity is not on our radar screen. We don't even know how to express that. We, we have no experience of that anymore. We have experience of technology. We have come to believe that technology would solve problems of the world. I, I definitely technology helps, but it has, it has to be embedded in human processes. Mm-hmm. And those human processes are there. If we talk about Ebola, Ebola in Guinea, I've been there and I've seen communities acting on, on malaria. So I know that some of the groups and people who are members of the constellation are using an approach that's very similar to what we call community life competence to enable people to deal with Ebola by themselves with the little support and the accompaniment of of the medical profession and, and others, but not a substitute of what communities can do mm-hmm. by themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so why don't you now talk about the book that you have just, I don't know if you've just written it, but I know it's available in French and mm-hmm. Spanish and it's going to be translated into English and the title mm-hmm. is What Makes Us Human. Mm-hmm. So talk to me about your book please, and what it contains, and I can't wait for it to be available in English. <laughs> it's going to be available, I think, in a month or so. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Uh, so the, the book was written, it's basically the, the story of Constellation. And the story of Constellation, from the outset until now, my motivation was 
to take stock of what we had learned and make it available basically to my country, Europe, in particular. So it's for that audience. So it's a story of consolation. And it's you spoke earlier about your process being very generic and now being used in European organizations, for example, mm. or communities. Mm. So is it is it a book that is practical in that sense too? Ah, so it's an appetizer, I would say. Ah, okay. Um, you, a teaser. You can't uh, read, <laughs> read the book. A teaser, yes. It, it, you can't read the book and then say, why is that organization? Uh, I want to get trained in this approach. I want to make sure I, I do it right. Uh, so uh, this is not a cookbook, but it's rather explaining through examples the various, first the power of salt. I gave you an example that, in that example I gave you at the beginning yes. is in that book. Yes. And also the various steps we accompany communities with and the impact of that, the transformation which we undergo when we do that. So you're telling There's a lot of stories that, and success stories and success stories and the evidence of of your work. That's right. Beautiful. And the purpose is, the message is this. Uh, we also, uh, you know, there is the indignados, huh? the, the people who were at Wall Street, etc. The, the, so, yes, indignation is fine, but then there needs to come action. And what we have learned is that communities, even in, in Europe, that, that community sense can be rebuilt. And from there, action can come. Beautiful. And just to give an example, in my own village, uh, we now have a, a whole group of citizens who have said, uh, at, at invitation of uh, several groups here in, in my commune, my my municipality, we have, it's called Gré d'Oiseau, and we have done, uh, for a whole weekend, we have been thinking of uh, what is the Gré d'Oiseau of our dreams in 2040. Mm-hmm. Can we depict that? How shall we, citizens, get there? What actions shall we undertake now to inch towards that dream. And we are not talking about what are we going to ask politicians to do? What can we do ourselves? Mm -hmm. And we are going to have another evaluation of where we are at in six months, and it will go on that way. Just to give an example of of application here, a similar process is in another city uh, at at the northern uh, of Belgium, where the same process has started and will probably expand. We have the situation of immigrants, immigrants who basically, once they see themselves as actors of their own inclusion in Belgian society, take all kinds of fantastic actions to make sure that Belgians accept them, irrespective of the country they are coming from, instead of just waiting for, you know, training and whatever papers coming from from Belgian authorities, they become the actors of their own inclusion in in society. So that is why I, I wrote that book, basically. Mm, yeah. What you're describing here, uh, Jean-Louis, for me is that these are timeless, ancient traditions of communities coming together 
to engage in conversation, to talk about the situation as it is and what their dreams are and what actions they can take to energize, mobilize around the dreams that they have for their communities. They proactively begin to think about what else is possible. And I work in the field of organization development and it's similar, how do we get communities, people in organizations, the members to take ownership, to have their voice, to feel that they are contributors and that they're valued and also have dreams about how they want it to continue. And the same happens, as you're saying, you're talking about in your village, in Brussels, communities. I work with a community here in a similar process. Talk to me about where you think this is going. I mean, to me, it augurs, it's very positive that at the grassroots level, we are wanting to speak up and be heard and not have these inductions or these instructions given to us by whether it's the organisational leaders or whether it's the politicians. Where do you think this is going? We are getting better, aren't we? <laughs> De- definitely. Can you, can uh, you what, tell me that we're getting better at this? Oh, yeah, there, there's no doubt about that. There's no doubt about that. And uh, what you just said about organisational development, the event I just come back from is a company retreat. Uh, this is 47 or 42 uh, informaticians working in Africa, in Belgium, and in the Netherlands. The firm is called Popay, P-O-P-A-Y. And that firm is implementing HR solutions from Oracle and other, and other, and other organizations or other firms. Mm-hmm. We went through the same cycle as we would have gone in my village or with a group of people with AIDS or whatever issue you might have. There, the thing was Popeye in 25 years. Mm -hmm. What is our dream? What do we see? How shall we get there? Mm -hmm. Where are we now? And basically, what it did, it was unleash all kinds of resources that were there, hidden in people, Mm -hmm. but that was not elicited uh, so far. So a huge excitement around it. And yes, This is a first step probably towards organizational change. The energy that comes triggers change, including in the way the place is organized. That we'll see in the future. So are we, uh, is there some reason for hope here? I think there is definitely, I don't know on your side of the pond, but on this side, clearly there's more and more people thinking about organizations, whether it be for-profit or not for-profit, as evolutionary organizations. Organizations that take their cues not from the steam machine or from, I don't know, the automobile or from the mechanical construct, but from nature. And nature evolves. Mm. In nature, function precedes structure. In other words whatever we decide as structure to be put in place has to support a function. Yeah. And basically, people have to find themselves, recuperate their lives when they are at work. It cannot be that I give away of my own life for eight hours per day or 10 hours per day, and then I live the rest of the the time, which is two hours per day, and then I go to bed. No, uh, 
we have to be fully living our lives, including in organizations. If we do that, we then have to start the process of uh, discovering each other as human beings, including in jobs, in works. That's why we would start systematically, whether it is in organizations, in, in cities or wherever, by a set of um, a first step in the process that we call are we human. In other words, we rediscover our humanity, our, our gifts, our motivation, all what we can provide to whatever undertaking we are going to shape together. And so, yes, that is what makes me uh, hopeful is to see the changes in so many other organizations that are evolving in a non-hierarchical way and where, where people find themselves to be happy, truly happy at work. So that is, I think, the change that we are going to see in the, in, in the future. Now, what the danger is, of course, that those who today profit or benefit from the current situation would not allow it to happen easily. Mm -hmm. That is now what, what the future will tell us. Yeah. Yes. And so what makes us human, your book, do you come to any conclusions about what makes us human? And I know you've just described the fact that we have a voice and we connect with what we feel most joy about and what we feel most happy and how we're contributing and how we support each other. Anything else you would like to add there? No, I, I don't. The book does not answer that question. The book explores it, but it does not answer okay. it. So I, uh, it's for people to reflect and say, okay, what <laughs> makes me human, in fact? Uh, basically, uh, what I can say is that my own conclusion is that all of us have that aspiration for connection mm -hmm. with others, mm -hmm. connection with nature, that we have different gifts, but basically our aspirations are very similar. And so when we are free to generate a dream in a particular group about our group in the future, we will find those trends coming there. We work together or we live together in harmony. We live in harmony with nature. We learn from what we do. We mobilize our first our own resources first. We are able to use mental side, uh, thinking, but it is at the service of a higher purpose. All that is there. And so my conclusion is, is really after 10 years in many places that I have found no exception to that. No exception to the fundamental goodness of every single human being in, on this planet. And the challenge is to have people perceive that, to stop the generalization and to, to really have a, an attitude of appreciation. And appreciation, I would like to say this, appreciation is not, is not an analytical process. So it is not about shifting from seeing what is not working to seeing what is working in an analytical way. It is not tallying the assets. 
it is something different. Mm. It is basically uh, is putting the analytical mind to still stand, I would say, being in the moment and appreciating what is in that moment. Mm. And when that happens, Krishnamurti, <laughs> uh, the Indian uh, philosopher, says, when that happens, there is no us and them, and action is immediate. Mm -hmm. And that is, we have verified that 100 times. Yeah. But for that, we have to get our analytical mind to rest for, for some time. Doesn't mean that we sh shall not use it. We will use it, but it will be our servant, not our master. Yeah, that's so beautiful, Jean-Louis. You've summed it up gorgeously and you have, for me personally, you have stimulated my thinking. You've given me a lot to reflect on and certainly I do appreciate I'm stopped in the moment and I'm truly savouring and appreciating <laughs> what you have offered us that will be shared by many people who listen to this in the future. I think from any of the practitioners out there who have learned certain methodologies about how to do this participatory work in organizations or communities, people who are living through some of these adverse situations, they're resourceful. They, yeah. they observe and they watch and they look for what, what's working and they yeah. apply it to themselves. So I think there's lots of layers here and it comes down to this very core the quote that I read from the beginning, which was on your LinkedIn mm. profile, which is about the sense of people at their core are good. Yes. If you give them mm. trust, they mm. will deliver for themselves mm. and for others. That's right. And when you shine the light and you believe that people want to work towards solutions, not only for themselves, but mm. you know, it's that Ubuntu, you spoke in Indian, but I, you would be familiar Ubuntu, with... Ubuntu, of course. Ubuntu, right? Well, of course. Of Ubuntu is exactly the same. We see the transformation and we can't help but be transformed ourselves. That's right. So I'm coming full circle back to how I really love that quotation that you yeah. also were impressed with about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that good? Isn't that nice when we say, hmm, yeah. <laughs> I'm not bad. <laughs> no, I was surprised to see too. Oh, I written this. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, yes. Yeah, so. Well, it's about you see, the the learning from action cycle is used by uh, is the Deming cycle. It's used in the energy, in the industry uh, by. Uh, quality circles. Yeah, quality it's very management. Well known Another. By Toyota, yeah. Et yeah, yeah. So. There is nothing in what we propose that is new, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, what may be of interest is that linkage between appreciation and that and that cycle. And where we we sometimes find difficulty is with people who are using what they call appreciative methodologies or participatory methodologies, but uh, not leaving their mental cage, if you want. Mm. Uh, uh, not not stopping the thinking, not being in resonance, really, but just basically using people's resources for their program. That's what is basically called participation in general. That's why we don't use that word. We don't use the word participation because if we would use the word participation, we would reverse. 
And it is basically saying this, services, those who give themselves, in general, they give it to themselves, or are given by the state or by some group, mm. uh, the mandate to help people should earn the honor to participate in people's lives. Wow, yeah. And not a reverse, which we use in general. Mm. Say, so, oh, yeah, people have resources. I should listen to them so that they participate. In what? In your program, as you decided it would be? Mm -hmm. No. That's why we, we don't use that, that word. And basically, one day, one day I'm arriving in, in uh, Geneva, and we were about to test community resilience, this approach to foster community resilience mm -hmm. or community competence in front of, was it SRAS or avian flu? I forgot which one. And there was, we were having a dinner in a nice place in, in Geneva. And next to me is this lady from American Red Cross. And she is very interested in, with the self-assessment and the tools we are using. And I said, well, you know, these are tools. It's like the screwdriver. A screwdriver, and that's where I make the mistake, is, is designed to screwdrivers. <laughs> <laughs> the lady looks at me and says, what is this guy? <laughs> Instead of driving screws, of course. <laughs> so there I was finished. Uh, I could not... Uh, <laughs> I had to turn to the other person. For the so you lost, she wasn't impressed with you anymore. <laughs> no, yeah. no, no, that was the end of <laughs> Dr. Lambore. Right yeah, but I think it's so interesting, you know, we have to have these things packaged, you mm. know, hence all these, these names. Yes, uh, and it's, that's where, you, you know, that's another, the more I go in life, the less specialised I am. And... Uh, this I realized, I was giving a speech uh, presentation with uh, contractors of UCID in, in health. And at the end, one guy, I think he was an Indian, and he says, how did you unlearn? Unlearn. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I'd never, I'd never thought of it that way. Mm -hmm. That is, to, we to... To be truly appreciative, we have to unlearn. We, we have to uh, shed yeah, the mental cage, the, the layers of, of tools. The toolbox has become so heavy, we can't mm -hmm. even carry it anymore. And, and yeah, I could not answer. It was the first time someone uh, made me discover that, yes, I wasn't learning, in fact, that... Then there is a book by Krishnamurti, huh? uh, Freedom from the Known, mm -hmm. which straight into that moment of immediate connection where there is no us and them comes from Krishnamurti, yes. Mm. Yeah, that was a great question. How do you unlearn? Mm, how do you unlearn? But I think yeah. automatically when you hear something that is new to you and it is how does this fit with my mm. worldview, and so we're looking for ways to make sense of it. That's right. Therefore, I would say the, the true learning is when we are ready to accept that the framework itself is up for change. 
as long as we are learning within the framework, we okay, fine. We are becoming better technicians. But are we ready to accept that the framework by which we see things is also uh, susceptible for change? Mm -hmm. That is when it becomes interesting, I think. Mm -hmm. And that is, by the way, I'll, I'll advertise two things. One more thing that is, uh, uh, we are. I don't know exactly when we are going to use that, but we have the Universal Declaration on the Right to Dream. Oh wow! And it, I think it's more. Well, we are testing it right and left, and it looks like uh, people love it. So. So this is something you're doing at um, community competence? Yeah, yeah. That's going to be constellation. Is going to we are going to see how. Oh, I love it. This could be a rallying point for any group that wants to to participate. You know, to in this positive epidemic. I love that. I'm going to have to learn more. I'm already a member of your Ning community, but I'm going to have to now actively participate. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> the Ning community is one thing. Huh? The other is really to. I think we are going to open Constellation much more. Mm -hmm. And, bon, if I'm reflecting after 10 years, okay? And I think we should move further towards uh, more, more communities, more being freely part of this. So, hey, you, you, want, you want to learn more? Well find an opportunity and we'll find ways mm. in which you could team up with other people. So Jean-Louis, I just want to thank you so much for this time that we've had together. As I mentioned, it's been incredibly stimulating for me and I'm fully appreciative. Thank you, Robin. And uh, I'm there. So as long as life's there, we can continue to talk and reflect together. You are there. <laughs> thank you so much. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye. Links to find out more about Dr. Jean-Louis Lambret, his organization Constellation, his book and others, and the Positivity Lens resource page are all available on the show notes page for this episode, and that is positivitystrategist.com slash PS15. And now to the Positivity Lens activity for this week. Let's take some hints from Constellation's salt cycle and apply it to ourselves. Now, S is for stimulate. What conversations could you be stimulating for yourself? A is for appreciate. Appreciate the moment. Stop your analytical mind and truly appreciate who you are and what is around you. L is for learn. Notice that everything in your life provides countless learning opportunities and possibilities. T is for transfer. Transfer your skills, your learnings and insights to others. Help them grow. Strive to have continued positive impacts on others that can transform them and you. Also, you can be notified of new episodes by email. Links to all these suggestions are available on positivitystrategist.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and remember, what you focus on grows... So grow towards your best.